0: I'm Will, one of the pastors and servants here at New Life Press, and uh, it's a joy to be with you all. Uh, We are celebrating and thanking God for our third year as a particularized church, but as always, we always remember the past and God's faithfulness to us in the past that allows us to be faithful in the present, and we pray for his grace that moves us on into the future. And so as we commemorate and celebrate and fellowship God's faithfulness to us as a a three-year-old church, we're always so thankful for Pastor Samuel and New Life Mission Church and our partnership with them in the KM side and we're always looking to them as our forefathers in the faith and for their grace and their prayers and their their forgiveness and their goodness to us. And so we just want to celebrate together as, as one church and one family. Uh, if you are visiting with us, thank you for your presence and just showing up. Uh, we're glad that you're here. Hopefully we can meet you. Uh, we are continuing along in a series in the book of Nehemiah. Even as we celebrate our third year, we're looking at a wonderful passage that I think can speak to us in our context here today. And so I'm going to be reading from Nehemiah chapter 6. Our scripture reading will come to us in the first 14 verses. So Nehemiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 14. So if you have your Bibles open up to that passage, otherwise look up on the screen. And if I could ask everyone to please stand as an act of worship for the reading of God's word. Nehemiah 6, verses 1 to 14. This is God's word for us. Now when Sinbalat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there is no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sinbalat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come and let us meet together at Hakifarim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times, In this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way sent Valid for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall, and according to these reports you wish to become their king. And you've also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear these reports, so now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent him, saying, No such things as you, have, you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking, Their hands will drop from the work and it will be not done, and not be done. But now, o God, strengthen my hands. Now, when I went up into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mahatabel, who was confined to his home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away, and what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced a prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sinballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired that I should be afraid and act in this way in sin so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sinballat, O my God, according to these things that they did. And also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. And this is God's word. Please take your seats. It's interesting how some of the most classic praise songs and hymns that we sing in the church oftentimes contain lyrics that are a little bit confusing. One of them might be the famous song Amazing Grace, in which one of the lines goes such as this, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." if you're thinking about this, it was grace that taught my heart to fear. And grace, my fear is relieved. Almost sounds like a contradiction, but if you know anything about the history of this song and the author, Newton himself, what he's talking about is really a conversion and a transformation. That when he discovered grace, it revealed to him the nature of his sin. And that made him scared to stand before a holy God. But then it was grace in the gospel that allowed him to see that those very sins that were revealed are not forgiven in the death and resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ. So all the fear and intimidation and worry were relieved. Grace revealed His sins. Grace forgave His sins. Our passage this morning is talking about fears. There are scare tactics, there are anxieties, there are, there's fearfulness, there's intimidation. We can see this pepper throughout the passages. Let me just give you a brief sampling of how this passage really is about our fears. In verse nine it says, "For they wanted to frighten us." And then verse 11, "to make him afraid." Verse 13, "For this purpose, he was hired that I should be afraid." Verse 14, "Who wanted to make me afraid." And then in next week's passage, you look a little bit ahead, in verse 19, "They did all this to make Nehemiah afraid." So in our verses, there's four times that he mentions something to the effect of being scared into to being afraid. It's talking about fears, fears that have been built up, and also in the gospel of Jesus Christ, how can these fears be relieved? I just have a simple question this morning. Are you afraid of something here today? Are you fearful of something? Are you scared or anxious? Are you stressed out? Are you worried about your health? Are you scared about your reputation? Are you scared about your future income? Are you scared about the health and the future success of your children? Children, are you scared about going to school? Are you scared about making friends in the classroom? Are you scared about that big game that's coming up? What are you scared of? What are you afraid of? The bigger question is not if you're whether or not you're scared, because all of us learn how to be afraid. We're born into it. But really, the big question is, what are you going to do with it? What do you do with your fears and anxieties? What are you going to do to address them? Do you live every day in constant fear and anxiety, or do you learn how to live through your fears in faith? Is it going to be fear or faith? And I think when we look at this passage, Nehemiah shows us a real-life picture of being scared, but then he also shows us how to apply the gospel so that we could live through our fears. And when you look at this passage, I think there are three main fears that we'll see. In verses 1 to 4, there's the fear of physical harm. And then in verses 5 to 10, you essentially have a fear of slander, a fear of reputation. And then the ending verses, we have a fear of intimidation. So, what Nehemiah is scared of is literally being kidnapped, of being slandered, and of his life being taken away through scare tactics. And so, let's look at this because we can appropriate what he does and learn how we can apply the gospel to live by faith through our fears and anxieties. And so first, in verses 1 to 4, we see that he was dealing with the fear of physical harm, an actual fear of his life, a fear of actually being kidnapped. And the reason I know this is because you read the verses, but then you have the trio, this trinity of bad men. So in and Geshem in particular, along with Tobiah, they want to have a meeting with Nehemiah so they could basically create this plan to kidnap him. And they say, Nehemiah, can you come meet us at the plain of Ono? And it's a very politically savvy move. These men, they have high EQ. They read the situations well. They know people really well. The Plain of Ono, according to the commentators, is old Philistine country. That basically meant for Nehemiah, a Jewish man, a Jewish leader, that going to the Plain of Ono was going to be hostile territory. And it's actually very plausible because the Plain of Ono was about halfway between Samaria and Jerusalem. It makes sense to want to meet halfway so that they could figure out a treaty or make a pact to say neighboring nations and countries, let's figure out how to be at peace so that we could work with one another so our economies could really do well. The Plain of Ono was about a little over a day's journey for Nehemiah. That meant if he went over to meet with them, it'll be close to a week and then he'd be far away from all the protection in his hometown. Next is Samaria and Ashdod, hostile districts. That's what he's seeing here. That's the meeting that's setting all this up. But Nehemiah, he shows himself once again to be a savvy, wise, and discerning leader, and he's sniffing out the plant because something smelled a little bit dirty. And that's why in verse 2, as he writes his memoir, he said, They intended to do me harm. Nehemiah, friends, was wise enough to say no, and he was wise enough to figure out a better plan to protect his plan and to protect his life. So he goes back and he tells them and he doesn't say, hey, you guys are sniffing out your plan, you guys are caught, I know you're trying to set up a conspiracy and you're gonna kill me. He doesn't do that, he's actually much wiser than that. And he says, I can't go meet you because I'm building this wall and it's a great work. And he's not bragging about this, literally a great work, it could be translated. I have really important work right now. Or more literally, I got a huge task. I can't meet you right now. Even though he's sniffing out the plan. And you can see the persistence of this opposition. Four times they kept saying, meet at the Plain of Ono. Four times Nehemiah says, no, I can't do this because I have a great task at hand. Friends, what's the application for us when you deal with a situation like this? Yeah, there may not be political leaders trying to take your life and concocting this plan to meet halfway so they could kidnap you. But nevertheless, you face all kinds of situations that could lead you to death. Nehemiah is astute. He's resolute. And he's a leader. This is one thing that I learned from Alistair Beck, who once said, a lot of people falsely pit leadership and confidence against humility. And he says that some say the idea of certainty... And humility are always at war with one another. The idea that humility and leadership, forceful and directive, visionary leadership, is always at war with humility because they say, Nehemiah is just prideful and he's stubborn. Go meet with the guys if they're asking for four times. But I think the Bible is saying he's showing himself to be a leader. And that's not at war with humility. The reason Nehemiah is in this story is because Nehemiah is called by God to lead. And humility, yes, will cause some leaders, and should, to say, Yeah, that was a bad plan. That was a dumb plan. I'm sorry I made that mistake. So humility has to be part of leadership, but leadership still needs to lead. Margaret Thatcher once said this, If you just set out to be liked, you'd be prepared to compromise on anything at any time, and you would achieve nothing, because either you want to be liked or you want to lead. But you can't really do both. And Nehemiah shows that in a calling of God, he wanted to lead. His response was wise and discerning leadership. He embodies really the wise man in the book of Proverbs. He shows us what the book of Ecclesiastes in chapter 3 says, that there is a time to keep silent. There's a time to hate. There's a time for war. And there's also a time for peace. This is our takeaway to work and live by faith through your fears your fears of your life and anxiety. Ed Welch, a counselor at CCF, wrote about a wise and discerning life, exactly what Nehemiah shows us here. And he says basically there's two prominent skills about a wise and discerning life. The first says this, live in the now. Live for today, not for tomorrow. Live in the now rather than tomorrow. The second approach to life says this, live in tomorrow, rather than in the emotions and gut reactions and the unexamined decisions of today. Both are actually in the Bible. The first one are for people who are anxious. Your grace is enough for today. Your mercies are enough for today. You have mercies for today. Live in today. Don't worry about tomorrow. God takes the lilies of the field and the birds of the air, so don't worry about tomorrow. Live for today. But the lesson for us in Nehemiah is that Nehemiah is living in tomorrow to figuring out the path, that leads to life and realize that that future path is directly connected to the decisions that you make today. That's why Ed Welch goes on and he says, in the wisdom literature of the Bible, in Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, they both identify these two skills of living in the now and living for tomorrow, but it has a particular interest in living for the future in discerning and wise lives, imagining what's just over the hill in our chosen path. Because wise people have looked far off into the future, and they adjusted their actions and their courses accordingly. Foolish people simply don't consider the consequences of their behavior. Wisdom does not promise an easy life, but wisdom in the Bible promises an alertness to the future that would ward off unfavorable circumstances to to foolish decisions that we make today. It's the best path, because although it's a hard path of wisdom, it's the path that ends in life. When you ignore the future, you find regrets, traffic tickets, possessions, money, people's approval, all those become way more important, even your personal desires become way more important than the God-given goal and plan that he has for your life. All addictions, all infidelity, being in the wrong place at the wrong time, anger that wins a battle but loses a relationship, all those things come into play when you don't live in tomorrow. Because the wise and discerning leader, just like Nehemiah, realizes that the decisions of today will lead him to a path of life down the road. And you're thinking, well, that's not very practical. How do I become a wise person? Well, Nehemiah became wise. Do you know how? Well, it wasn't a lesson or a formula. He just spent a lot of time with God. God strengthened him, he prayed for him, God led him, he worshiped God. Every time you read about Nehemiah, he's always turning to God. And there's something that happens when you have a relationship with God that you naturally and almost imperceptibly start to become wise. That's the nature of wisdom. It's not formulaic. You can't figure out an algorithm for this. And Ed Welch goes on to say that one of the main principles of living a discerning life is that you take things a little bit slow. 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 Now, the last time I watched the Summer Olympics, you know, it was track and field. I think that was the Summer Olympics, track and field. And I didn't realize that walking was now an Olympic event. And I thought that was really strange. So if you are out there competitive walkers, you know, there's not, that's fine, you're great. I'm sure you're a great athlete. When I saw competitive walking as an Olympic event, I was like, there are great athletes, but it looked a little bit strange to me. I always wanted to see the 4x4 relays or the 100 meter dash. That was much more exciting, explosive speed. Everybody probably, if I took a vote, rather watch the sprints over the walkers in the Olympic event. But I don't think Proverbs would do that. Because you know what Proverbs says? The wisdom literature in the Bible says wisdom walks way more than it runs, wisdom's pace is deliberate. A frenetic and impulsive lifestyle doesn't provide room for us to consider our ways and imagine the future and what lies ahead or seek advice. The very nature of a proverb is that it invites reflection and contemplation and patience and accumulation of inform- information. So if you're always finding that your life you're busy and you're always stressed out and you have hundred million things to do and you only have four hours of sleep at night and there's never a resting moment, then proverbs will gently tell you you're running the fool's race. Because wisdom and discernment in Nehemiah is a race in which you walk. That's his first fear. But secondly, we notice this. He doesn't just fear for his physical harm, but Nehemiah in verses 5 to 9, also there's the fear of slander. Now the fifth time, the Trinity, the bad guys, they send a letter. It's another political move with slander and false accusations. If you read verses 6 to 8, this is what it says there. In it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. And that is why you are building the wall, and according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear these reports, and now come and let us take counsel together. And this is a brilliant move. They send a letter through a messenger over to Nehemiah, and back in those days, the letter wasn't sealed, so it officially became a public record. Anybody could read it. In other words, they're spreading gossip and slander, and they're saying, we're going to tell this all to the king of Persia. And Nehemiah, as tempting as it was to meet with them and to correct them and to say, hey, you're misunderstanding me. Don't impugn modus, My reputation's at stake. He didn't set them straight. He basically said, you made it up out of your mind. I'm going to stick to the plan, and I'm going to build the wall. Friends, the Bible says a lot about slander and a lot about gossip on both ends, for people who gossip a lot, but also in this case with Nehemiah, for people who gossiped about a lot. For example, there's warnings of gossip and slander in 2 Corinthians 12.20. There are commands to stop slandering in Ephesians 4.31, 1 Peter 2.1, and in Colossians 3.8. The scholar Phil Reichen defines gossip as talking about people in a way that damages their reputation, and the reason gossip is such a heinous sin is because it hurts your neighbor, and it steals your neighbor's reputation away in some ways That's hard to get back because the great reformer, Martin Luther, says reputation is something quickly stolen, but not quickly returned. In fact, the word for gossip in 2 Corinthians 12 can also be translated as a whisper. It means talking about harmful information in a whispering voice because it's not widely known, because it's private and it's supposed to be kept secret. Now, maybe Thomas Watson, the great Puritan, he says it as a Puritan always does, very direct. And he says, He that raises a slander carries a devil in his tongue, and he that receives it carries the devil in his ear. Because in some ways, there's no greater damage and potential division to the church than gossip and slander. But here's the thing: Nehemiah, if I would imagine to be in his shoes, and I've been in situations like this where you feel misunderstood. People impugn motives, or they simply just say something that you felt was completely wrong and slanderous. There's an anger and a bitterness and an urge there to retaliate or to get back or to fix it. Or maybe there's an anxiety to say, My whole life is built on a reputation and I can't run the risk of losing my reputation. So there's a temptation for Nehemiah, I would imagine. Slander is hard, gossip is painful. Being misunderstood and being impugned motives that are false and sinful, that's hard. And I think there's a strong urge there to correct and to explain and to do a propaganda and an ad campaign to explain everything. We become defensive, we retaliate. But Nehemiah, he doesn't do that. He sees through this and he works for a future and a greater plan. He doesn't meet with them. He just says, what you're saying, you just kind of made up. Now, he shows to be such a wise and discerning leader, even in the fear of slander. He encapsulates what Proverbs 15.1 says, The heart of the wise makes his speech judicious and adds persuasiveness to his lips. There's a sense in which Nehemiah fights against the grain, says, I'm going to worry about something greater than my own reputation. And the only way that Nehemiah is able to do this is to understand as important as someone's reputation is. There's something more foundational, more powerful, and more important. Not just the name and reputation of Jesus, but also the plan of God in redemption. That even on a personal level, all that we think a good name would give us in terms of friends, reputation, a sense of worth, a validation, all those things which are legitimate, you realize that at one point you have all those things already. You're already loved, you're already validated. You have a good reputation not because of who you are but because of who has saved you and I think that's what Nehemiah is learning here that in Jesus you and I as well as Nehemiah have in full what we try to get through our reputation your validation is already real your security and your reputation is already present your sense of worth is already present in the gospel You're already accepted. You're already loved by Heavenly Father. He sent His Son, Jesus, to die for you. You already have an infinite self-worth because Jesus Christ gave you Himself. He imputed His righteousness to you. For those of you who are in Bible study on Friday, He imputed His active obedience to you. So now you're actually completely clean and holy and righteous, and you live your life out of that. That's why Jesus says in John 8.32, You'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free from caring too much about your reputation and your public image, whether it's through social media, whether it's through your position role at work, or whether it's here even in the church. Because Jesus came from the Father, full of grace and truth, in John chapter 1, verse 14. And the truth to set you free. And I think that's how Nehemiah, rather succumbing to fear, lived through his anxiety of his reputation being lost, because he has something deeper and more profound in the gospel of Jesus Christ for him. That reputation is not just about an image, but it's about a person whose name is Jesus. who loves you and dies for you, and he gave his life for you, that now you live out of his life and his work and his glory and all his grace and forgiveness and love given to you in the cross of Jesus. And last but not least, we see this. Nehemiah is a wise and discerning leader. He lives out of faith and not fear, not just from the fear of harmful death, not just from fear of his reputation and slander, but last but not least, he opposes and he lives through the fear of intimidation or scare tactics in verses 10 to 14. Read with me verse 13. It says, for this purpose he was hired, talking about the priest Shemaiah, that I should be afraid and act this way and sin so that they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. That's what it says there. This guy was a hired hand. He was hired help. And they hired him so that Nehemiah would be afraid to act this way in sin. See, it's a brilliant plan. They're always conniving. The fact that Nehemiah wouldn't meet with them, their last plan was actually to hire a priest. If anyone's supposed to be very trustworthy, it's going to be a priest, Shemaiah. And what does Shemaiah say? He says, basically, Nehemiah, why don't you go hide in the temple? And he uses scare tactics. And in verse 10, he says it twice hide in the temple, close the door, because they're going to kill you. They're going to kill you at night. It's forceful. That repetition usually emphasizes they're going to kill you. They're going to kill you at night. Nehemiah, go in the temple, close the door. By the way, Nehemiah says, I can't go in the temple because one, I'm not going to be a coward. But he says, secondly, I'm not a priest. And if you went into the temple and you're not a priest back in those days, you would lose everything from a religious standpoint. He was wise and he was discerning. He didn't succumb to the fear of scare tactics. Now, it doesn't exactly match up here, but have you ever been intimidated, whether it's understandable or whether it's fearful? Have you ever been scared? Have your hands ever shaken? That's why in verse 9 it says, God strengthened my hands to finish the work. Have you ever been scared? Have you ever been intimidated? Now, it doesn't really match up, but a couple of months ago I was speaking at the chapel at Westminster Seminary, California. And honestly, I was, I was thankful to do it. President Joel, he's a, a longtime member of this church. He's our scholar in residence. We want to support him. It was a, a very thankful opportunity to speak at the chapel at Westminster, California. It's just an everyday chapel. They do it all the time. In some ways, it's just giving a gospel message and is nothing really special, except it was an honor to be able to do this. And I brought some guys down there, both from our church but also in our presbytery, so we could hang out and visit the campus and bless the student body there. And then somebody asked me, how many people you think are going to be in the chapel? I told them, probably about ten. Six of them would probably be from our church and from our presbytery. And then I get into the chapel and I realize the student body is much more faithful than I realized and gave them credit for. And so I started getting intimidated and then a little bit nervous. And as I sat there on the pulpit in the chapel of Westminster, California, then all of a sudden, these professors started coming in. You had Dr. Van Drunen, Dr. Bettner, one of my old professors, and Dr. Troxel. And all of a sudden, I see Joel, who I know so well, but he's still the president, and he's sitting there in the back, and they just have laser focus because their minds are so brilliant. And I felt so intimidated, and I'm kidding you not, in the middle of this simple message about mercy, people didn't know, my hand started shaking. And I had a hard time moving my page from one, to- one side to the left because I cared too much, potentially, of reputation, performance, acceptance. I don't know. But intimidation. Have you ever had experiences like that? That's just a small example. I would imagine in school, social anxiety, the lunchtime, trying out for a team, a big game. Something out there will make you feel very scared and Intimidated. Well, what are you going to do? Well, some of you, I think, are like this. When it comes to anxiety and fear, your hands are always shaking. And I call this the Charlie Brown philosophy of life, because Charlie Brown once said this, I have a new philosophy I only dread one day at a time. I wonder if that's how you live your life. Because the gospel offers you something far better. It doesn't mean it's easier, but you could deal with the intimidation, and the anxiety, and the stress of life if you have the gospel according to Ed Welch when he says, when you erode the fear of death with the knowledge that you already died in Christ, you will find yourself moving toward a simple and bold obedience. Running the race, but walking it. You've already died with Christ and you have a new self. You see, friends, this is how we die to Christ because it's interesting when we talk about dying in Christ that Sunballat, Tobiah, and Geshem were all very selfish. They had their own agenda, but they finally came together as a team because they wanted Nehemiah to die. It's interesting how selfish teams and nations can come together cohesively when they have a common objective. Sunballat had a political objective. His jurisdiction covered Jerusalem, so he wanted political power. Tobiah had a religious objection because he was a mixed religion related to Yahweh. So he had a religious objective. Geshem had a financial objective. He had a lucrative trade with frankincense and myrrh, and Nehemiah building this kingdom affected and threatened his economic prowess. So all of them had their own individual objective, But their one objective that united them was actually to kill Nehemiah. Do you ever hear of a story in which two different political and religious organizations came together with a political and a religious objective to kill somebody that they had otherwise no commonality together? Well, if you fast forward thousands of years from the Old Testament and you come into the Gospels, you have these two factions, the Roman government and the Jewish religious leaders. They had nothing in common in their religion, all they had in their individual objectives was to kill this man named Jesus. So the threat that we see here with these three Trinitarian bad men points towards a collective gathering of two groups to kill the one and only greater governor, the true wise man in Jesus Christ. Romans and Jews came to kill Jesus on the cross And whereas Zimbalat, Tobiah, and Geshem failed, the Romans and Jews succeeded because God planned for them to succeed, that Jesus would die so that we would have new life in him. And if you look to Jesus, the one who died for you, the one who is a true discerning man, the wise man for you, the one who sits at the right hand of God for you, then in him and the powers that you receive in Jesus, the blessings and the forgiveness and the love that you can experience, you could get through your fears day by day. It may take a time, but you could get through this. Because in verse 9, when it says, Oh God, strengthen my hands, what Nehemiah is saying is I'm weak and I'm throwing my life and my weakness into the hands of God. And we do exactly that in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we are weak and broken and totally depraved and unable to do anything that's righteous apart from the surpassing worth and power of Jesus Christ for you. And I pray that all of you could believe in this and to accept this and to receive this because then by faith, you can live through your fears and not be crippled to live only in dread one day at a time. Friends, let's turn to the Lord. Let's pray. Father we thank you Lord for the grace that we receive in your son. We thank you Lord that we don't have to pray that you would be able to gather us together as your people to live in the faith of Jesus Christ so that we could live through the fears of this world that we have to that you have called us to be a witness and to be a guide. So we thank you Lord so much for this time and we pray all these things in the name of of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, friends, if you look in your bulletin, we have such a a wonderful occasion here, as Elder Daniel has prayed, that we will